0: reflecting on that. And one of the comments was um, from, from someone who has their, their child in church, just how they've got used to our routine, our, our structure. And so then when things change a bit, they're like, no, there's meant to be one more song. No, we're meant to do this first. And so today is going to melt their brains because <laughs> we, are, we are jumping straight into the, the sermon uh, after those first opening songs. And so for some of you, you'll be celebrating because it means that we've missed the turn and say hello to the people around you moment as well. Some of you, you know, this might have been the day that you were sitting next to, you know, that person. Oh, I just want to meet this person. I'll be able to do it in the service. Sorry. Uh, you'll have to, have to take your own initiative and do that, do that later. But the reason why we're doing this too is because we are streaming the sermon this morning across to... To Aubrey Baptist. So hey to the folks at Aubrey, it's nice to have you joining with us uh, this morning in in this way. Um, As we um, continue on in this series in in the book of Psalms, we are today at Psalm 69. So that might be uh, something you want to get ready and open for you. Um, Last Sunday night though, I was here preaching on the question of would a loving God judge... And in setting up my answer to, to that question and in framing it, as we've been doing at night, framing it in the context of, of worldview and how that shapes how we engage with Scripture, how we understand life, how we you know, um, uh, understand God and, and His place in, in, our, uh, in our lives. So in, yeah, framing it in the context of, of larger worldviews and differing worldviews. I told the story of a conversation I had, it would be a few months ago now, with someone who has been reading through the Psalms, as we've been encouraged to do in this series. And he's someone who's taken the approach of reading the Psalms, kind of grouped by their their category or type. You may have noticed, if you read through them, that there seems to be some common common themes, common categories in, in the Psalms. It might be praise or thanksgiving Psalms. It might be royal psalms, which are all about the king and and honouring him and thanking God for him. There's wisdom psalms, like Psalm 1, that that shows us a a way to to live. And there's psalms of lament, which is what we're in today, in Psalm 69. But this person then has been reading the psalms grouped by these different categories. But he says to me, uh, as we're talking, he says, I really have a problem with the vengeance psalms. And while our psalm today is not a vengeance psalm as such, it's a psalm of lament, it has a section of it. And, and I get it. I get why it's uncomfortable for him and, and for us. Um, they're uncomfortable because we know the teaching of Jesus, don't we? That we are to turn the other cheek or, or that we are to forgive um, or, or we pray, God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so, how does praying then that God would pour out your wrath on them, which is what our psalm says today, how how does how does that fit? And yet, I want to say, if we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure that there's times when we've felt that desire to pray in such a way. Maybe it's been a boss who has been making you work. Excessive hours, above and beyond what you're paid for. And not only do they take then the credit for your work, but they also take the annual bonus for themselves as well. Maybe it's finding out that your daughter's now ex-boyfriend cheated on her and had sex with someone else because she wouldn't. Maybe it's 20 years out from school and it's that kid or that group that bullied you that has left you now still with ongoing insecurity and crippling social anxiety that still profoundly affects you today. Whoever it might be, there are, there are times, aren't there, when we just want to see justice done and we want to see God metaphorically or literally smite someone, perhaps repeatedly, in love, of course. So I want to say, maybe we understand maybe we understand the Vengeance Psalms more than we give ourselves credit for. More than we want to admit. But we certainly don't pray them. And we certainly don't pray them in public. Could you imagine? David or I, I mean, we're, we're nice guys, absolutely. But could you imagine that if we started praying, God, smite these people? We don't do it, certainly not in public. <laughs> just privately, when we're reflecting on some pastoral challenges that we might have. <laughs> got a out here yeah, yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff's just offering me a bigger shovel I could do with that, I think. We don't pray with such anger or for such violent retribution, such as the Psalms do. But it's in the Bible. And they were used in and for public worship. And so, so what do we do with all of that? How do we understand that? Well, hopefully we'll come to some understanding of that as we work through our psalm then together now, which is... As I said, Psalm 69. <clears throat> so if you've got it there, uh, we'll dip into different chunks of it throughout. But it starts then with these words, and it's David writing, and he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. And the psalm starts with David expressing that that he's drowning. So much has come at him that he is barely keeping his head above water. He has no firm footing under his feet and so he's desperately just treading water and he's just trying desperately to stay afloat as the floodwaters seek to engulf him. Have you been there? Yeah. Are you there now? Some of you might be. And because this is about more than just being excessively busy. Like when we're busy and just, we can be overwhelming in that way, absolutely. But this is about more than that. Um, we can feel like we're sinking with all that's on our calendar. But, but David's getting to something deeper than that. This is when just blow after blow just keeps coming. You know, when, when you go to the beach, um, and you get swamped by a big wave. And then you're know you, you just try, struggling to get up, but then the undertow is you know, is a killer, and it's pulling you off your feet. And so you're bracing yourself in the other direction against the toe, but then the next wave comes, and it goes with your momentum and smashes you down again, and, and you just, just can't get up. That's, that's where David's at in this psalm. It's the, it's the report from school that one of your kids has been caught vaping. Followed by your partner unexpectedly losing their job. Followed by a friend telling you about the way that you really let them down recently. Followed by finding out that your mum has cancered. Followed by your credit card getting scammed. Followed by, followed by, followed by. Blow after blow. And in the midst of this, David says... I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. And there's irony in the imagery here because David says he's being swamped by water, yet his throat is parched. It's an indication of just how desperately he's crying out to God in the midst of his struggle. He is caught in the rip, he's being pulled out to sea, desperately crying out for the lifeguards to see him, to hear him, to see and to have them come racing to rescue him. But his voice is hoarse and his eyes can see nothing. There's no rescue on the horizon. We've talked in this series about about where we fix our gaze, whether we, we... lower our gaze and just focus on the circumstances and the waves that are around us or whether we lift our gaze above and beyond that to the God who is over all. But here's then David trying to do exactly that, trying to look for God and yet failing still to see him. I want to pause to say that especially if you're in a place like this at the moment, I just want to acknowledge that that's hard. And there's no easy solution or response to that. There's no, there's no sugarcoating it. This is a hard time. And so you, you then totally understand David's prayer uh, that we read on from verse 14, when he cries out, Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me. Deliver me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up. And I think right there then is something that's actually really significant for us. Because even though David was worn out in calling for help, even though his eyes were failing to to see God, yet he continued to call out to him. Yet he continued to look for him. Even when God's not answering, this psalm encourages us to still cry out to him. It reminds me of Jesus' story of the persistent widow that he told to his disciples to show them that they should always pray and never give up. But this is not just a message to tough it out. I mean, when you're treading water, you can only do that for so long, it just gets exhausting. And, and having someone come along and say, hey, just keep going. You know, it really helps, doesn't it? So, so this is not a message to say, just tough it out. Because notice how the prayer for rescue and deliverance is, fr- is framed. David has just said, yep, God, rescue me from the mire, rescue me from the, from the waters. But just before that, In verse 13, he says, I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor. And he asks God to act in your great love, O God. And then in verse 16, he cries, at the end of the prayer, he says, Answer me, God, answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and in your great mercy, turn to me. In other words, to continue in prayer to God, even when it seems like he's not answering, is not just about... You know, trying harder, toughing it out, white-knuckling your way through as you desperately hold on to faith. It's, a, it's actually about looking to God to act because of his character and because of the relationship that he has established with you. It's, it's like David is reminding him, as he still calls out to God despite his signs, it's like David's reminding him to say, God, we're in a covenant relationship here where you are steadfast and where you are faithful and where you are true. I know what you're like, you're loving and merciful. And so verse 17, do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. In other words, he's saying, God, act like I know who you are. Act according to your nature. Act according to the relationship that we have together. Maybe you've had an argument in your family, say, with your spouse, maybe with a parent, and they refuse to talk to you. And you send them this epic text message and you you barely get the shortest of responses back. You just get, okay. But you keep calling, or you keep messaging, or you keep seeking them out face to face. Why? Because of the relationship that you have with them. You know that this silence is just a blip on the radar because, you, because they are still in your life and they are still in relationship with you. I mean, it's not the exact same dynamic in this psalm because it's not that God's silent because he's angry, angry or whatever. So it's not the exact same dynamic. But perhaps it's similar enough to help you to understand how it is that even when God's not answering, still we continue to cry out to him. Well, we then see some of, at least some of the causes of David's troubles when we come back to verse 7. From verse 7 we read, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. If we were to put this into contemporary language, we would say that he is suffering with blow after blow coming at him because he's a Christian. He's scorned, he's shamed, misunderstood, mocked and ostracized because of his faith. ...in God, because of his passion for God. And we know this too, don't we? You're passed over for a job because you're one of those Jesus people. You're accused of hate speech because you hold to a position that's informed by your faith. You're not invited to an event because um, people assume that you wouldn't like it... or, ...or the people who are there, because you're a Christian... You dare to voice a conflict that you're having with someone only to have it thrown back in, in your face to say, "Well, that's not very Christian of you, is it?" These are unfair and they're often unfounded judgments. And then what then makes it even harder for David, in the context that he's writing, is that these are presumably coming from others of God's people. Other Christians, if you like, are mocking him for his zealousness for, for God. So instead of getting help and support, they are just making things worse for him. Verse 20. Scorn has. No, a bit further down. Yeah, verse 20. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, this is a warning for us who are help givers, if you like, to people who are struggling. Because talking metaphorically, what David says, they need sustenance, but we mix gall or poison, effectively, in with their food. And so instead of it being life-giving, it's actually life-taking. They need water for their thirst, but we give them vinegar instead, which just kind of, you know, it looks the same, but it just is bitter and it leaves them thirsting all the more. So we need to be careful and gracious and compassionate in how we respond, so as to not even further exacerbate that suffering. But to leave that point aside, this psalm says to us that even when following God is the cause of our difficulty, even when following God and being a Christian is the cause of our suffering, as as people come against us or or whatever it might be, still continue with him. Because as he says in verse 6, he is the Lord Almighty, Lord in capital letters being his personal name that he's revealed to his people, and Almighty, indicating his supremacy above all. So he is still worthy of our trust. He's still worth continuing with, even when doing so prompts trouble for ourselves. Because if God, after all, is supreme, almighty, above all, better than anything else, if he's the ultimate good, then then even when following him sends stuff our way, it just makes sense, though, still, that we continue with him because he is supreme above all. And then the psalmist changes the nature of his prayer. So far, he's been you know, asking for his own rescue from the situation he finds himself in. But now, it turns and he prays, For the destruction of his enemies who have caused this situation for him. So let's see what he prays from verse 22. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them and let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Strong words. And his prayer really is for a reversal of his situation. That what he finds himself in, that it would actually be transferred and maybe multiplied onto them. Where, where he says that his food has had poison, he prays that now their table would become a snare and a trap. That where his eyes had failed to see God, that now their eyes would be darkened with blindness. That where he was a stranger within his own family, a foreigner not fitting in, that now there would be no one to dwell in their tents, that they wouldn't have a family to be a stranger of. And that where he would be answered with God's sure salvation, that they would not share in it. More than that reversal of situations though, his prayer is one For vengeance. God, these people have done me so wrong. I pray that you pay them back for it. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It feels so uncomfortable to pray such things, especially in church. But the truth is, when we're honest with ourselves, we may, we may not have prayed that, but we've thought it. We've felt it. And as we think about intimacy with God, we come back to the idea that, that fundamentally, for us to be intimate with God, for us to have a, a deepening, closer relationship with God, it requires our honesty. And so even when it's ugly, God still wants us to be real with Him. After all, it's not like it's hidden from him. It's not like he's going to be surprised about the things that we're thinking and feeling. And while we seek to hide it from him, while we try to put on this happy Christian mask to him, we will never deepen our relationship with him because we're not offering him ourselves in vulnerability and authenticity and realness. We're offering him a mask, a a fig leaf, a false version of ourselves that, that isn't really us. God doesn't want our nice and our polite prayers. He wants the ugly real ones too. Because they are us in a trusting, open, intimate relationship with him. I want you to notice this though too. And this might help make us feel more okay with praying such prayers. David here is being honest with God about his desires, you know, that, that there'd be vengeance. But he's actually leaving the acting out of them up to God. David himself is not doing anything to take action against those who have wronged him. He's praying that, that God would. And in that prayer, there's a recognition and a submission to the fact that it's, it's God who ultimately gets to decide what happens. Even when we want revenge, even when such vengeance might be very well justified, still we are to leave it to God to act. As Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not pay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Which, as a side note, let's be honest, is going to be far more effective than ours, but we'll come back to that. Um, Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so such prayers, they are an expression of our relationship with and our intimacy with God because we take the fig leaf away to reveal our real selves before him. And maybe more than that too, we take the crown off our, off our own heads as we look to, in faith to God for him to act as he sees fit as the one who is the righteous and holy judge. As a psalm of lament, this psalm has expressed and then helps us to express our pain and our suffering and our difficulty. It's articulated that um, it's articulated the suffering of our experience and it's been real before God about all that we feel in response to us, both our own overwhelm and our desire for you know justice to be done on others. And then, as as the lament psalms almost always do. And then turns from our experience and at the end it turns us towards God. Look at verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion. In, in the midst of his circumstances, and in fact, kind of immediately after that, that prayer for, for vengeance, if you like, in the midst of his circumstances, the psalmist here is then choosing to praise. He, he doesn't say, you know, as, as that starts, you know, in, in verse 30, he, he doesn't say. I do praise God's name, or I praise, or I am praising. It's not something that he's currently doing and in the midst of. He says, I will praise God's name as a matter of choice and of discipline. Even when it's hard, this psalm says, still praise God. And such a choice is both an expression of our faith but also something that that bolsters it, that lifts it up. It's an expression of faith because it expresses this confidence that God will see you through it. I will praise you. I know this is going to happen. I I choose to do this because I know that you will see me through. I'm I'm in the midst of it now, but I believe in who you are, God. And so I'm going to choose to still praise you. And, And it's also something that bolsters and builds up our faith because it reaffirms God's character and action and our relationship with Him. I mean, we come in this morning and we sing on the throne. We remind ourselves that for all the the mess and the chaos and the confusion and the disorder of what our lives might be, we affirm, God, over all that, you're on the throne and you are victorious and you are glorious and you are reigning over all. And reminding ourselves of that bolsters us and helps us to get through then what we're in. Now, I know that that sounds nice in theory. Because when you are in the midst of it, praising God might actually be one of the last things that you're inclined to do. But the Psalms are so real and honest. And they recognize They recognize this difficulty. Because look at verse 30 again with me. Such a choice to praise God in the midst of all that you're experiencing. Actually, it's verse 31. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and its hooves. Now, we can easily miss this. But oxen oxen and bulls, they were the expensive sacrifices. They were the aged wines. They were the prestige cars. They were the, they were the five stars of sacrifices. And so with that, they, they cost. They cost a lot. But to praise God by choice when you're nearly drowning, well, the psalmist says that costs a lot more. And it means then so much more to God. We can praise God when life is good, and it costs us nothing. It's just easy. It just overflows. God's good. Life's good. Yay, Jesus. But when it's it's easy to do then, but to recognize God's worth and to express that in the midst of suffering, that is a costly sacrifice. That is an expensive sacrifice, and it honors God all the more. In David's life, he, he sinned against God by conducting a census of the, of the fighting men of Israel, showing that at least in that moment that he put his, his trust in, in his military might more than in the Lord Almighty. And as a result, a plague comes on Israel until God relents at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And so David wants to build an altar there to worship God. And Aruna just wants to give him the land. He goes, you're king, you've done all this great stuff for us. I'm fine, Just, just take the land. I'll just give it to you. But the king replied to Aruna and said, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So even when it's hard, Even when it costs all that is within us to do so, still praise God. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. And he is far more honored by that sacrifice than anything we'd put in the offering bag. This psalm, as I said at the outset, is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that, that brings the reality of our life honestly before God. Not trying to pretty it up. Not trying to pretend that it's something that it's not. But to be real and honest in the difficulty of it. And as we pray such a psalm, as we pray in such a way, we are in good company. Because we are in company with our Saviour Jesus. He was As Isaiah tells us, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, swapping drops of blood, he was that overwhelmed. God seemed silent to his anguished prayers, and yet still he cried out. In all of his life and ministry, zeal for God's house consumed him. As he challenged then the religious leaders of the day, uh, and he started bringing God's kingdom. And this was then why they were so against him, and they conspired for his death. Yet despite all that living for God was costing him, yet he still continued with God. On the cross, in the midst of his pain and his despair, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the Son of God who has lived and loved God perfectly yet profoundly experiencing God's abandonment. And he doesn't shy away from that, but instead expresses that and still is real with God. And ultimately, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Even when it was unimaginably hard, his life was one that still praised God. This is was a psalm that was first written and lived by David. And it was then fulfilled by his descendant Jesus and given to us, the people of God, to express the reality of our own life with him and to praise him in the midst of that life. So let's do that together now. It's one of the great gifts of being part of a church, part of a gathered people of God. Because even when, or especially when, we find it hard to do so. We are surrounded by, by others whose faith and praise reminds us of a God who loves us, who has saved us, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. They remind, it reminds us of a God who hears us and who answers us and who will lead us through the darkest valley and out the other side. Reminds us of the God who will do justice even if we don't see it. Reminds us of a God who wants relationship with us and in Jesus has done everything needed to make that possible for us. In short, we we praise God together to remember that he's, He's the God on whom we can build our lives and who then is worthy of all of our praise. And so let's pray and worship Him together then now. God, we want to thank you for your word and what it shows us, for what it shows us of all that we can bring before you, our life in its reality, not prettied up, not pretended about, no fig leaf trying to hide something, but just coming in the fullness of ourselves, open and honestly before you in all of our struggles. And we thank you too for what your word shows us of who you are to us in the midst of that. That even when you are silent and we can't see you, that actually you are still there with us. And That even when it's hard, you are still just so abundantly worthy of our praise as the supreme and ultimate good in our lives. That even when it's not pretty, that you just so want relationship with us and, and for us to be real before you. We thank you for who you are, God, that you are the one who is on the throne, who's reigning and glorious and victorious, but also that you are the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, and so our high priest who is not unable to empathize with us in our struggles and in our weakness, but you are here with us. And so as your people then together this morning, we want to turn to you and to praise you again. For some of us, God, that's, that's easy. We're in a good place. We're experiencing your blessing and abundance. And out of the overflow of that, we praise you. But for some of us, God, that's hard. Even just turning up today was such a challenge. But we're here And we, in our praise, want to offer you the sacrifice of our our lives, of our worship, and just declare that you are worthy of everything that we could ever bring, and that you are the one that we do build our lives on. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.